Check, check. Oh, there I am. Here we go. Inspired by the Super Bowl halftime show, you know, a West Coast vibe. Um, so why don't we just read a passage from Acts if we're presumably starting a series in Philippians. Well, if you're listening closely um, to all those city names, which you're welcome, all bad for all those city names, um, the city that actually all of this takes place in, of what Obed just read, is in Philippi. And so that's the city that this letter would be subsequently written to. And so what I wanted to do today was, you're going to see maps today, you're going to see timelines today, uh, is to, to give you a good sense of the context around this letter that we will be in through June of this year. So we will, we will really know Philippians by, by the end of this series. And if there's, uh, this is probably one of those handful of books that it's, it's good to know inside and out as a follower of Jesus. There's just such richness here. In fact, this is probably the, the book in the New Testament, which probably means the book in the entire Bible, that, that I personally uh, value and know the deepest. Uh, one of my favorite courses in, in grad school and seminary was in Philippians. Um, I did uh, some work uh, on Philippians. I taught it a bunch of times when I was in campus ministry at Princeton. So I really love Philippians. So I've actually been kind of holding on to doing this book for a time that I felt like um, we were especially in need of it as a community. And what this book is going to do for us is it's just going to really orient us around Jesus and around the uniqueness of who Jesus is. Uh, some of the classic themes that people talk about in the letter to the Philippians are around unity, are around joy in the midst of suffering. Right, Our community, I would say kind of the broad theme of, of our community is probably most churches right now, which is we are coming out of, we hope, my goodness, you see this new variant, oh my gosh, um, but we are coming out of, I hope, um, this, this COVID craziness and kind of looking around a little bit at the, at the rubble around us and kind of figuring out, hey, who, we, who are we moving forward, both individually in our own stories, in our own individual lives, but also corporately as a church we're asking that question. So Philippians just enters all of that in a really beautiful way. And so today, by way of looking at this story, and we won't really go deeply into the story. We actually preached uh, Acts 16. We did it in two sermons way back in, in, in a series that we did in Acts. So if you're really curious about some things here, go, go find those. Uh, so we're going to do a little bit of a flyover of Acts 16. But by way of looking at Paul's actual entry into this city, I'm going to introduce the, the letter in general. And then what I'll let Jalen do next week is kind of finish out the story itself because the end of the story is just too good uh, not to not to preach it on its own. And so, um, so let's let's jump into it. I, I'm kind of deciding where to start. Let's start with the text itself. So, this is Paul, who was an early Christian missionary and teacher. Very radical conversion that he goes through, and then uh, much like we did uh, just now with Obed. The early church lays hands on Paul and sets him aside for a particular task, which is to go out and to break new ground for this Christian movement, to go preach this good news, this gospel, where it hadn't previously been preached. And Paul does this a couple times, and basically his route always is from Jerusalem and then throughout the Roman world. This is classically called Paul's second missionary journey, first map of the day. Here we go. Boom. Okay, so I know this is a little bit hard to see. But this is the area that, that all of Paul's ministry was, uh, took place in. These are, these are all the names of, that you know, I made Obed struggle through. Um, 
Here's, I felt like this might be helpful. This is modern day where this is. So go to that next map. So, uh, so this is that area. So here's Israel, right? This is the Mediterranean Sea. Here's Israel. Here's uh, modern day Lebanon, Syria. A lot of what happens happens in modern day Turkey, uh, which would have classically been called Asia and Asia Minor back in those days. So modern day Turkey. And then um, Philippi is right here in, in modern day Greece. Here's Italy, right? And so modern day Greece, here's Philippi right here. So now go back to the first one. So now here's, here's Paul's route. So Jerusalem is actually further south than this map shows, but normally he's heading out from Antioch. So if you can see this, it's this purple line here. And he's kind of, he's kind of making a, a northwestern uh, general direction for, for where he's going. And then we're told this. He went into the region of, I don't know how to say these either, but Phrygia and Galatia. And so here's Galatia. Phrygia is, is kind of this part having been forbidden by the Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So this is when he starts going left. And when they had come to Mysia, uh, which is up in this kind of region, um, they attempted to go into Bithynia, which is up there. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, this is when they go straight left, um, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So you got to picture Paul is, is going to these different places. Troas is that very last place in Asia that they're at. Then there's that Samothrace place. Got a picture of Paul's generally making his way north. And then did you notice that there's a couple times where his path is thwarted? It's like the spirit of Jesus didn't let us go there, but we were forbidden from going. What's interesting is we're not told exactly what that, what that was or what that meant. It seems like it could be something as simple as like we couldn't find lodging there. Or, you know, when, when we got to that city, all the hotels will, were full or whatever. You might think that because the passage ends with Paul having a very specific vision in a dream of a man of Macedonia coming over here, that that was normal. I actually think it's the opposite. Most commentators think it's the opposite, that the exceptional thing is that Paul gets this clarity about going over into Macedonia, which is Greece, which is modern-day Greece, going into where he eventually ends up, Philippi. Instead, it seems like he's just kind of going about his business. And he's like, I think generally the gospel needs to be spread through the Roman Empire, so, so, so let's head out. Let's, let's go towards the center of Rome, which is in Italy, right? Rome is in Italy. So he's kind of making his way towards the center of the Roman Empire. And as he goes along, every now and then, where they plan to go, hey, Bithynia would be great. They get there and they're like, huh, I guess, I guess this isn't it. I guess we, that we should keep going. And, and then when they've been thwarted a couple times, then Paul has what seems to be the exceptional experience of God speaking with clarity, saying, come over here to whatever a man of Macedonia is, right? Like, I guess that this is like, I don't know, like a man of Pittsburgh would be wearing like a Steelers jersey with a penguin's hat or something, right? Like, I don't know how exactly he knew that it was a man of Macedonia, but a man of Macedonia is like, come over here and bring this good news to us. And then what I love here is that they actually talk about it as, as a group, but they say, concluding 
that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. All right, I'm belaboring that point for a reason. So that's the exceptional thing, the exceptional clarity that he gets. Which, by the way, uh, again, preach the whole sermon on this, but shows us a lot about just kind of general what the will of God is like. The will of God is not often a shot down from heaven, a vision from heaven. More often than not, you kind of do what you feel like you're supposed to do, and then every now and then, maybe God speaks with clarity. If not, you just kind of keep doing what, what you're doing. This time, God speaks with tremendous clarity. They're like, okay, it couldn't be clearer. This is where we're supposed to be. And do you notice that when they get there, so setting sail from Troas, made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a leading city of Greece, and a Roman colony. Hold on to that. That becomes important later. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to a woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, the worshiper of God. Lord, open her heart. Pay attention to what was said by Paul. After she was baptized, her household as well. She urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. She prevailed upon us. I don't know if you've ever been prevailed upon to stay in a place, but this is, you know, she's putting out all the good stuff. She's putting out the good food. She's putting out the good wine. She's like, come on, come on, stay, 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 right? And so they stay. That phrase at the beginning there, we, we were there for some days, is almost certainly a euphemism. It means we were there a long time before we met anybody. And they finally, they're like, they're looking in every corner for someone who wants to hear this message. Keep in mind what sent them there. What sent them there was the clearest vision that they have received yet on their missionary journey. They've seen a bunch of people become Christians. They've caused all kinds of havoc in all kinds of cities. This is one of the first times that they get a clear, like, come to Philippi, come to this place, and takes them days, if not weeks, to find one person out by the river. You can imagine them like, anybody, anybody, and then they're like in the woods, anybody, and then they happen upon this group of women who are praying. And one of them, Lydia, is like, yeah, I'm down. And then they bring her back and her household. One of the cool things about Lydia's story is it seems like even from the letter of Philippians and some of Paul's other letters that the church actually ends up meeting in her house. There was a time in Jacob's Wells history where we did house church, right? And Lydia was, was the Monahans and Thomases of, of that church for those of you who were around in those days, right? Like it, it ends up in her house. But in all of those early days and all of those early weeks, one, one person which in some ways is beautiful and very preachable. And it's like, God will show up and give clarity for one, right? Like one matters to God. Amen. Praise the Lord. From a strategic perspective, you can imagine Paul's boys are like, bro, tell me about that dream again, right? Okay. Story keeps going. Now they have this very interesting interaction. Uh, As we were going to the place of prayer, we met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, brought her owners much gain by fortune telling, Follow Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. True or not true? True, right? True. She's saying truth. Seems like what's going on here, right? There were, there were cheats and, and cranks just like there are in our time who said, I could tell you your fortune. But there's also a real spiritual realm that, that some people have exceptional access to that the enemy can use for his own purposes. And often what the enemy uses is actual truth but either applied in the wrong way, spoken in the wrong way, to actually do more damage than an outright lie would have done. That seems to be what's going on here. And this she kept doing for a few minutes, a few hours. Who's looking at the text? Nobody. For many days. Well done. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, would you have been annoyed? Days. These men! Right? Like, and this is, this is like probably not someone that the city saw as like a 
respectable like you want to be like she was, you know, they would put her behind a curtain and you would go in and pay your money and then have your thing done and they'd keep her behind the curtain. Now she's out screaming, these men, they're the, they're the real deal. They're servants of the most high God. You want to know salvation? These are your guys. Helpful? True? Yes. Helpful? Yeah. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, another euphemism turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. Came out that very hour. When our owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off them, gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. After an already meh start to this mission, now Paul and his companion Silas find themselves in stocks, like old school, medieval times. If you've been there, <laughs> right, like the torture place. Um, that's where they are. That's where this ends up. They're in the middle. They're in the most secure place in the jail, and, and they're immobilized by chains. Now, it is definitely the case that if I were Silas, in this moment, I would turn to Paul and say, bro, tell me about that dream again. How would you know it was a man of Macedonia? You've been saying that all along. Macedonia is a big country. You sure that this, like, was the city that we're supposed to be in? This is the the foundational experience from which the church in Philippi, from which this early Jesus-loving, Jesus-following community is planted. And I think it's significant, therefore, to understanding just the book of Philippians in general. First, let me just show you a quick timeline to orient you, which is sometimes helpful in terms of when all this is happening. I know this is super small, so I'll read it for you. All right, so the death resurrection of Christ is around 30. By the way, these, these are every five years. So from 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, 55, 60, and so on. And so Jesus' death and resurrection is, uh, is in about 30 AD, as best as we can tell. This journey, what's happening right now, is somewhere around 50 AD. So about 20 years after, right? So if Jesus' resurrection uh, happens in 2000, these events are happening, let me push back, happens in 1990, these events happen in 2010, and then the letter is written to the Philippians in 60, would be written about now, okay, to give you a sense of the passage of time. Jesus dies and is resurrected in the 90s, Paul goes to the city in 2010, he then writes a letter 10 years after the events of the founding of the church. But I think what happens to Paul in Philippi is one of the ways in which it's instructive for us is almost certainly what's happening to Paul is what the people themselves are also up against, which makes a lot of sense of how the letter ultimately unfolds. What's the next slide? Cool, let's talk about it. So there's three, there's three big themes that, um, that I think are massively important to not even just themes, but even, even concepts, individual words that are really important to grasp how Paul is using them in order for the book of Philippians to really come alive. And the first one is this word, gospel. Now, if you've been with us, even in the last couple months, um, we did a, a whole sermon defining 
what we mean by this core identity represented by the cross and thorns here of gospel-centered. And so if you want like a 40-minute treatment of that, that's, that's that sermon. The gospel is a technical term in the New Testament for all of what Jesus did and the ways in which what he did fulfilled the entire story of the scriptures and uh, fulfills humanity's longing for redemption and salvation, how uniquely the work of Christ on the cross provides good news for the bad news of humanity's fall and rebellion and brokenness and sin. The way in which Paul is going to specifically use it, because uh, this word gospel takes on a technical term, in part because it was a term already in use at that time. And it was particularly in use in a Roman context, right? You heard here that Philippi is a Roman colony, and I'll define for you what that is in a second. But all of this is happening in the context of one of the most powerful empires this world has ever known. And within that empire, the word gospel itself had a technical use. And there is no way that the New Testament writers, now they're picking up some of its use from the Old Testament, but there's no way that they're partially not going after also how it was used in the wider culture at that time. And how it was used in the wider culture of that time is that, and this is a massive oversimplification, but for the sake of time, is that when a new ruler came into power, and who were the rulers of Rome? What were they called? Caesars, very good. By and large, again, that's an oversimplification. But when a new Caesar would, would be born, that there would be an announcement, there would be a, a, a declaration of that Caesar coming into power. And that announcement would be good news in the empire. That would flood. That was capital G, capital N, good news, right? Like there's headlines on the nightly news and then there's the stuff that you break into the show and say special report we have. And this, usually it's bad news. In this case, it'd be good news, capital G, capital N. So they would literally send heralds to the four corners of the empire to carry this good news that a ruler was coming who was good and gracious and going to provide salvation and justice and joy for all peoples. Now you have the, the Christian understanding of who Jesus is, which is not only is Jesus the savior of the world, not only does he die for sin, but because of what he did, and Philippians will talk about this, because of what he did, he now reigns and rules as our representative, as a representative of all humanity, not just of the Roman Empire, but of all humanity, Jesus reigns and rules as the rightful king of the cosmos. And this is one of the ways in which the New Testament writers use this idea of the gospel. And so, go to that next slide, Rachel. So you'll just see this. I only took this, these out of chapter one. If I did this, it would be way too big a slide. So just listen to the way that Paul picks up this language. Um, he's thanking them because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He has really served to advance the gospel. I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, if you don't know what gospel means, you're going to be like, cool, bro. Like, I'm glad that all of these things apply to it. What he's getting at here is he's saying that we have a different message because we believe that there is a higher reality than the good news of Caesar's rulership. We have better news than Rome has ever had. 
okay? And it is a royal announcement that there is now one reigning and ruling who is truly good, who is truly the rightful king of all of creation. Go back to that last slide for me, Rachel. And so the salvation, right, and the, the essential difference between these two gospel announcements is Caesar is Lord, royal announcement. Caesar is now Lord or Augustus or, or whoever has become the, the rightful ruler, royal announcement, good news. Of course, for Rome's sake, he does it at, at, at the tip of a spear, right? He does it through violence. He does it through coercion. He does it through might, right? Like Rome, might makes right. The peace, the Pax Romana, this quote-unquote worldwide peace that Rome brought, how did they bring it? They brought it with a sword. They brought it with armies. They brought it with centurions, right? And the essential difference between the Christian royal announcement is that in utter, I mean, think of how different it is. How did Jesus become the rightful king? He put himself on the other side of the sword. He put himself under violence. He accepted the violence and sinfulness and broken of this world rather than wielding it as a tool to call others to submission. And so Paul says this isn't just about, our gospel is not just about you say Caesar is Lord, we say Jesus is Lord, as though that wasn't subversive enough. Right? Like you're, you're, maybe you're, you're new to the church at Philippi, right? Heard, heard a, a pastor make a, a great point about this in, uh, in introing Philippians. You're a new convert. You've just showed up at the church at Philippi. You like the people there. You heard the music is good or whatever, right? And you sit down and they're like, oh, we got a letter from our founding pastor. And you're like, oh, cool. What? I don't really even know what these people believe. I'm mostly here because of my friends. And they open it and they say, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. You're like, okay. To all the saints in Christ who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that doesn't strike us as modern, you know, 21st century Western people as much. But you're sitting there and you go, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because to say that Jesus is Lord is to explicitly say, who is not Lord? That's a real question. Who? Caesar, right? It's, it's, a, it's a subversive declaration to say that. But it's not just that we believe Jesus is Lord, you believe Caesar. We believe that Jesus' reign and rule and the means of his reign and rule are at complete odds, are utterly diametrically opposed to how the reign and rule of Caesar goes. We have a totally different way of seeing and understanding how the world works, how power works. Next concept that's really important in Philippians, next slide, is citizenship. Uh, you, you heard in the, in the Acts passage that Philippi was a Roman colony. This is a very fascinating historical reality that honestly, it's, it's only been really in this time prepping for Philippians that I've really understood how profound this is for understanding what Paul is doing in Philippians. So 
What is a Roman colony? First of all, all the cities and settlements in the, in the Roman Empire were not Roman colonies. This is kind of interesting. We actually see this when you watch Paul go to different cities, and there's certain cities in which he, he's able to claim his Roman citizenship, and then there's other places where that doesn't matter as much. What a Roman colony was, was a city that was specifically designated by the authorities in Rome as an outpost of Rome that, that basically functioned to be Rome in that place and to have all of the rights and privileges and governance structure and laws and taxation that was true in Rome itself. And so to be in a Roman colony was to be in Rome, not the Roman Empire, to be in the city of Rome, that the capital city of Rome had certain, and if you were a citizen of the capital city, Rome, you had privileges, rights, all of these things that any old person in the Roman Empire did not have. A Roman colony was put within the Roman Empire for the distinct purpose of being Rome in that, in that region, of being what Rome would be if it were physically present there. You tracking with that? Okay. So Philippi is an interesting Roman colony in that what it was most known for, and all historians agree with this, that Philippi was specifically put, one, on the site of one of Rome's biggest, uh, I won't go into all the history, but one of Rome's biggest military victories uh, against its enemies. And so think, you know, in American history, Gettysburg or, or something like that. This is the site of, of one of the, the primary victories uh, that, that made Rome what it ultimately was. And so they put a Roman colony there. And then who they actually sent to this Roman colony were veterans largely of that war or just veterans in general, okay? And so you can imagine, so why send veterans to a colony? Why? If you wanted to represent America in the rest of the world and make sure that those people were loyal, I think a pretty good place to start is our military, right? Like you're, you're talking about people who are tremendously loyal to, to Rome, uniquely loyal to Rome. Let me show you on a map, big map day prepared you for that. This is the Roman Empire, okay? Um, this is the section that we were looking at before. If that looks familiar, here's modern-day Turkey. I took all the country names off because it was easier. Here's Philippi, right? And what's that? What does that yellow arrow represent? That's Rome. Very good. Roma, right? So here's the Roman Empire. Here's Rome. How in the world can one city in all of this functionally rule all of this without outposts from which it has loyal people who can spread the waves. Because here's the most important thing to understand about a colony. A colony did not exist to be a bubble within the rest of the empire. It existed for the exact opposite purpose. It existed here to spread Roman ways and culture and loyalty all around that region. And so even if you look at, I couldn't quite find a map, but if you look at a map of Rome, because it changed so much, it's hard to find one 
that really captures it around this time. If you look at a map of the Roman Empire and then look where these Roman colonies were, you see the strategic nature of them. You see that they're never too close together, um, but, but they're spread out pretty appropriately. And then you would send your most loyal people there. So these citizens, these loyal subjects of the empire were sent to these colonies not to huddle among themselves and say, man, it would be nice if we we're in Rome right now. Instead, they had a mission. That's why the second word under citizenship is mission. They had a mission to spread it. All right, listen to some of the language that Paul uses in Philippians. Only, this is Philippians 1.27, which most scholars agree is the thesis statement of the letter. Those of you who like that kind of a thing, English teachers and all, right? Like, here's your thesis statement. Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I've put a Greek word on here. Don't freak out. But this is the Greek word. And this letter here uh, is a P and that's an L. And the rest of them are pretty much what they are in English. And so I, I put it here. So the root of this word, polituomai, politu, politu. What does that sound like, Steve? What word does that Politics, good. Let your manner of life is one word in the Greek. It's one word, and it's that word, politiu. Only let your manner of life be worth. This is a political word. It's conduct your politics. Be political in a way that's worthy of the gospel. Conduct yourself as a, as a member of society in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. You could very easily say that a Roman colony existed so that people would live lives, would, would polituomai, that were worthy of the gospel of Caesar. See what he's doing here? He's picking up their language, and he's saying, you need to understand that your citizenship is essentially different than the citizenship of everyone around you because you belong to a different king. You belong to a different Lord. You belong to a different good news. Your gospel is a gospel of Christ, not of Caesar. Therefore, let your life, your way of conducting yourself in the world, reflect that. Philippians 3.20 says, but our citizenship, again, same root word here, politu, is in heaven, and from it we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship actually isn't in this world. It's elsewhere. It's not where we are physically present. It is elsewhere. It is in heaven. And this is not to say, by the way, that it's in heaven in the sense of, so let this world burn because one day we will go to heaven. Because it says, even in this verse, let alone the rest of the New Testament, who's going where? Are we waiting to go to heaven? What does it say? Looking at that verse, we are awaiting a savior from it, right? Like the, the movement of the New Testament is not we go to heaven, it's that heaven comes to earth. So he says one day heaven will completely pervade the physical space that we are currently in. Right now, that space is separated from our physical space on earth, but it is the place where Jesus's reign and rule is unthwarted in the world. Where, where his will is perfectly done. That's where your citizenship is. 
If you took out a card and say, where do you belong? What are you a citizen of? The answer for the Christian, maybe don't do this if you're pulled over, but the answer for the Christian, right, is my citizenship is ultimately not in this physical world. It's in a realm that we are waiting to have invade this world where Jesus is all in all. See what he's doing with all this language? So you go up to someone who lives in Philippi. You say, you live in Greece. You live in Philippi. You must be a citizen. You must be a Greek citizen of Philippi. And these veterans who were sent there would say, no, that's to get it all wrong. Because who I actually am is I am a citizen of Rome, sent here with a particular purpose. Now, here's where it gets interesting. If we are citizens of heaven, which will be the name of this series, then what does that make the church? It's a colony, right? And does a colony exist primarily to be a bubble that is protected from the rest of the big, bad, scary world? No, right? colony exists to spread the culture and ways and truths and laws of wherever home is. This is why Christians pray. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Hear the, hear the linking of this too? on earth as it is in heaven. And guess what the primary means that God has used in order to bring heaven's realities to earth? Church, it's us. It's us. That's Paul's theology. Paul's theology of who we are. It's Paul's theology of the church. We are citizens of heaven brought together as a colony, but not to be in a holy bubble because that is not the point of a colony. A colony spreads the ways and message of home, wherever it is sent, right? This is why there's a mission to the church. Last thing, we have gospel, we have citizenship, we have suffering. I don't think it's any mistake that before Paul plants the church at Philippi and before it's a church at all, that Paul goes through the kind of suffering that he goes through. That this is part of the, the very DNA of the church because it seems exceptionally the case that the church at Philippi was familiar with suffering and persecution in a way that even some other early New Testament churches just weren't as familiar with these things. Why? Why was the Philippian church under more strain and pressure than most other churches. By the way, how do I know that? You'll know that once we work our way through Philippians because Paul is constantly going back to, what do you do with suffering? What do you do with hardship? What do you do when you're like really, really sure that God has called you and asked you to do something and you are walking in total, even brave faithfulness to him and his call on your life and you're sitting in the middle of a prison in stocks? What do you do? How do you process that? Has God utterly and completely failed you? Has he left you? Has he forgotten about you? Has he drawn back 
on his good promises to you? This is the question that he is at pains. And so a term that I would love for you to become familiar with as we work our way through this letter is this funky word right here, which is cruciformity. Cruciformity. It's a term in New Testament studies that's become popular over the last 20 years or so. And it's the idea that Paul's understanding of what it means to be formed as a Christian, what it means to be discipled as a Christian, is essentially to be formed. Anybody know what that, that a lot of grammar today. Anybody know what this prefix here, this crusa, is related to? Anybody know what that word means? Yeah, you hear it in, in what word? They, a crusa, crucifixion, right? It's, it's the cross. It's, it's a word that speaks of the cross. And, and that formity is, is word, that we are to be formed into the, the way of the cross, that our lives are to take the, the pattern of the cross, and what is the pattern of the cross? This is the heart of Philippians. The, the one image that I didn't put up here that I wish I had, maybe I'll do it in, in a couple weeks when we actually enter into the letter, is the best way to understand the letter of Philippians, which is just four chapters, right? Like it's not a super long letter, is that there is this beating heart in the middle of it. And that everything makes sense when you understand that Paul is working from the beating heart, from the center, from the central thing in this letter. And the central thing in this letter is actually a poem. Some scholars think that it was an early Christian hymn. Uh, most scholars, I think, at this point would, would say that, that Paul probably actually composed this. And it's this. It's commonly called the Christ hymn. Philippians 2, and it says this. Have this mind, this posture, this way of being, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, given him the name that is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue would confess, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the Christ hymn. That the shape of Jesus' life was he let go of power and privilege that was rightly his because of who he was. And he leveraged all of it to become a servant, humbled himself, made, put himself in human form. This is, this is um, subtraction by addition as one of my favorite New Testament scholars says, Jesus loses something by putting on human form. And he does it in order to humble himself and humble himself all the way to the point of serving our greatest need by giving us what only he could provide, which was his sacrificial death, being under the full weight and penalty, the wrath of God for sin, putting himself under it all. And because of that act, because of that utter lowering and humbling, God finds him trustworthy, so to speak, to have all authority handed over to him. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name of Lord, which is only Jesus's to bear. And so in our suffering, especially insofar as our suffering becomes because we are seeking to be faithful, 
because we are seeking to love others, because we are seeking to live a different kind of life. That this is the norm for the Christian life is one of the things that Philippians is going to say. Being in a broken, messed up world and seeking to live well and to live out of a place of love is something that this world, that the winds of this world will always be in your face against. The winds of even your own flesh will be against that way of living. So there is a kind of suffering that we can expect. There's also the kind of suffering that just springs up in a moment because this world is full of sin. And yet the hope of the Christian is that that downward, that, that intentional downward movement of love and service towards others, of putting our needs aside to love and serve others, is met with the commendation and vindication of God himself, such that whether it's in this life or the life to come, there will be a well-done, good and faithful service. There will be an exaltation that awaits all of us. And so Paul says, yes, this is the pattern of the life and ministry of Jesus, but this is the pattern in life of every Christian if we are willing to have this posture among us rather than the posture and the mind of this world because our hope, our citizenship is not in this world, nor is our hope. Our hope is beyond the ways and combination and vindication of this world. It is grounded in heaven's vindication. It is grounded in heaven's ways. One of my favorite quotes ever about Jesus, I roll it out every now and then. At some point you'll say, we've heard this before, but everybody's like, that was great and it was new. I'm like, it's like the ninth time that I've read it, but that's okay. Is This is from a, a Catholic journalist from like 50 years ago that I'm not sure wrote anything else, but I came across this and I think it's one of the best things I've ever read on what Jesus is doing. So my feet, by the way, don't, I'm not mad at you for not knowing that you've read this before. Um, uh, so my thesis is that Jesus died of being human. His very humanity meant that he put up no barriers, love that for us as a church that seeks to break barriers, no defenses against those he loved who hated him. He refused to evade the consequences of being human in our inhuman world. So the cross shows up our world for what it really is, what we have made it. It is a world in which it is dangerous, even fatal to be human, a world structured by violence and fear. The obedience of Christ is just the eternal dependence of Son on Father, the procession of the Son from the Father, of true God from true God, projected onto history. The fact that this obedience is an obedience unto death, even death of, on the cross, is because the history upon which it is projected is a sinful history one in which to be really human is to be murdered. Do you hear what that's saying? Jesus is the first person who is truly human. And being truly human and in human world naturally leads to a kind of suffering and rejection. And so sometimes in our suffering and rejection and pain and loss and grief, the last thing that we should suppose is that we have left the will of God somehow. Because this is so often what obedience and faithfulness looks like. And yet because our hope is not in this world, we can live toward hope. <laughs> we can live toward an exaltation that awaits us. When one day, somehow, God takes up all the suffering, all of the pain, all of the grief, all of the rejection, and he wipes it all away with his very hands. He wipes our tears from our faces. And the realities of heaven come and they pervade the four corners of the earth. And we sing, worthy is the lamb who is slain 
the only one worthy of our obedience, of our allegiance, of the title of Lord, now and forever. That's the message of Philippians. That's what we'll be jumping into over these next few months. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this hope. We thank you that there is hope in what often seems like a hopeless world. God, I pray that as we go through this letter, Lord, we would be a church corporately and we would be individuals increasingly shaped to look like your life, to look like people who have embraced the way of the cross as the way of our very lives. Lord, do this work among us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.